page 474, Ezra 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from the captivity of, to Jerusalem began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Hinadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of the weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Well, we're coming back to part two of a six-part series looking at the book of Ezra. It's going to take us through the summer. We're calling it Rebuilding the Church, Rebuilding the Church. And we're going to pray as we begin. Let's pray. Those words from the reading, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Uh, Father, I pray uh, that as you speak to us through your word that, that we would be uh, completely convinced of your goodness and, and of your endless love and, and your perfect character and all of your loving deeds. And so we would sincerely want to give you thanks as individuals and, and as a church. We pray, Father, uh, that we would leave this afternoon full of gratitude to you 
for who you are and, and, and what you've done. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, well, I, I, I wonder how important the cross of Jesus Christ is to you personally. How, how important is, is, is the cross of, of Jesus Christ? Do you, do you think about it? Is it? Does it play an important part in, 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 in your life, in your identity? I wonder how much you feel that you depend on it day by day. You know, you go off to the office, you come back on the tube, you, you go into the classroom, listen to the lecture. How much do you feel that as you're doing those things, you're depending on the cross of Jesus Christ? Is it that important to you? Uh, I wonder how much it under, underlies what you do day by day. The kind of decisions you make, the sort of ambitions that you have, where you see yourself in 10 years' time. I wonder if the cross has a sort of bearing on that. I, I wonder if it still gives you a, a, a sense of um, surprise and a sense of joy that Jesus should have given his, his life in your place. I wonder if it does that to you. Or maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Perhaps you haven't sort of made that step yet. And um, maybe you're impressed with some of the moral teaching of Jesus. So the Sermon on the Mount is very, very famous, uh, quite revolutionary. Some of the great Christian traditions, perhaps you've uh, looked into those and, and, and you like them. But you're, you're a bit puzzled that something as um, apparently distasteful as the cross should be the thing that Christians just insist is is right in the middle of what they do. I mean, they build their buildings in the shape of a cross. They put crosses all over the place. They, they talk about the cross endlessly. And there's this insistence right at the heart of Christianity. I don't know whether you've come across this. But every one of us is, is somehow offensive to God. And that there's a problem between us and God because of the way that we've treated him. Unless we come to the cross of Jesus Christ first. And that sort of cleanses us and it it mends that relationship. And, and it's right at the heart of Christianity. It's not about buildings. It's not about pews. It's about special outfits. It's all about the cross. I wonder how important the cross of Jesus Christ is to you. What would you say? Whether you see it right at the heart of Christianity. Whether you see it right at the heart of your everyday spirituality. Of your sort of experience of being a Christian. Well, we're going to be thinking about that as we look um, today at, at the book of Ezra, because the book of Ezra is all about getting back to the heart of things, getting right back to the center of things. As God's people are rebuilt, they've been, um, what's it called, in the, in the captivity. It says in um, verse 8, they've been away from home, and now they've come back, and they need to be rebuilt, and God gets right to the heart of things as, God's pe as God rebuilds his people. We began to see that last week. And um, I know this, this is going to be way too small a visual aid. I can, I can, I can tell already. But um, uh, I, bought some, um, I bought some Russian dolls this week. Um, and uh, if we were rebuilding a city, okay, we would start with the walls, wouldn't we? You know, just, just get the big sort of engineering out of the way. There we are. Then we'd, we'd sort out the people. we get people to sort of move in. Here you go, number two. And then, you know, we might, um, might build a temple for them, maybe. Be a nice thing to do, wouldn't it? And um, 
And then outside that temple, perhaps we put an altar. Okay. And then, and then we'd hope that as, as people came to that altar, that their hearts would be moved. Okay. <laughs> you sort of hope that, wouldn't you? You know, the, you start with the start with the big things and then you work your way into the center. That's the way that we would, um, that's the way we would rebuild the city. But in the book of Ezra, it's all the wrong way around. Okay, it starts from the middle. Chapter one, the Lord moves the heart. That's where God begins. When he wants to rebuild his people, he starts with their hearts. And then it works outwards from there. All the way through Ezra and Nehemiah, originally one book. So have a look at the diagram on the screen. Uh, I've, I've put a, a diagram up there. This is just the way that, that Ezra works. So Ezra chapters 1 to 6, and that's to do with restoring worship at the temple. Okay? Uh, working this way. First the heart, then the altar, then the temple. Okay, despite pressure from the outside, considerable pressure from those people around Jerusalem. Then there's a gap of 70 years in history. And then you get Ezra um, chapter 7 to 10. Ezra only really appears in chapter 7. And um, that's to do with the obedience of the people. We get to the people, okay? Despite temptation on the inside, that's the enemy in chapter 7 to 10. And then only in the book of Nehemiah, we're not going to go on to Nehemiah uh, this summer, but only in the book of Nehemiah are the walls rebuilt. Can you see how it's all back to front? God begins with the heart, rebuilding God's people from the inside out. That's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So chapters 1 and 2, God moves the heart. And then today we're coming to the altar and then the temple because... When the Lord moves our hearts, that's when we value the sacrifice. That's what we're going to learn today. When, when the Lord moves our hearts, that's when we start to really value the sacrifice that, um, that God provides. Let me show you what I mean. Here's the first point from this chapter. Uh, we're calling it this. A necessary sacrifice, have you found it? Necessary sacrifice, have you found it? And um, if you've got chapter 3 down there, page 474, uh, and John brought this out really well while he was reading it, I think verse 6 is the first big surprise. Um, can you see that, verse 6? It, it's interesting. As you read through the Bible, it's often, it's often the surprising verses, the verses that you can't quite understand or just seem a little bit out of place that really give you the key to what the Bible's teaching you. So verse 6 is really a surprise, and it's down there on verse, uh, down there on page 474, chapter 3, verse 6. This is what it says. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundations of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. That's a bit strange. Because um, God's people have been away for a, for a long time. They've been what the Bible calls exiles, away from home, they've been forced migrants, and now they've come back to build the temple. Um, and, and the start of the book could, could really not be more clear about that. So um, the second verse of, of, of the book of Ezra, build a temple for the Lord. Okay, that's the, that's the aim. Third verse of the book, 
build a temple for the Lord. Fourth verse of the book. They gave freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Fifth verse of the book, build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. You, sort of, you can see how Ezra is sort of making that point. Repetition is the key to, to learning. Okay, teachers, you, you all know that already. Repetition is the key to learning. It's my only revision technique. And, and, and this is what Ezra wants us to know. Okay, they've come back to build the temple. It's not a complicated point. So why do they build the altar first? In the middle of a building site, they build an altar. And the reason is because the sacrifice is so necessary, you see. The sacrifice is so necessary, it has to come first. And that's what they come together for anyway. Um, in chapter 3, verse 1, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. That's amazing. It, it, it's incredible seeing, um, seeing that unity, isn't it? Have you ever seen one of those um, massive groups of starlings? Apparently, you get 100,000 starlings. Um, we see those down in down Eastbourne. Murmuration, apparently, is the proper name for it. 100,000 starlings, and they all turn at the same time. Incredible to see. Um, or football stadium, 40,000, 50,000 people. Someone scores. Doesn't tend to happen with my football team, Brighton. But um, apparently it can happen. And then 40, 50,000 people just jump to their feet as one man. And all these people come together to do one thing, which is to build the altar. And that's what the leaders are committed to. You can see, um, see them down in, in verse 2. Joshua, he sort of represents all the priests. Zerubbabel, he's not officially the king, but he's descended from the royal line. He's a royalty. Um, and um, the names mean something interesting um, in the Hebrew. So um, Joshua means the Lord saves. And Zerubbabel means born in Babylon. Interesting, isn't it? If you put those two together, the Lord saves people who've been born in Babylon, brings them back. And, and this is their first program in partnership. They're quite a dynamic duo, and they sort of come together and they do quite a lot in um, Ezra. And their name's in Haggai. Uh, it's one of the prophets that's sort of um, speaking God's word in, at this time in history. But this is their first program in partnership. And, you know, they're not afraid to get their hands dirty. They're not like sort of First World War commanders who sort of send people over the top while they, you know, they drink Beaujolais back in the... Uh, uh, back in the office. They lead from the front. They build the altar. And they do it because that's what God's word has taught them to do. It says that several times. End of verse 2. She said, in, um, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They did what, they did what the Bible said. Or, I mean, granted, there's fear in, um, in verse 3. They're pretty afraid. We'll come back to that um, next week. Um, but they're going to do what God's word says in verse 4. They're going to act in accordance with what is written. Now, you can sort of imagine them there, can't you? You sort of spade in one hand, Bible in the other, and, and, and they're going to do what God says that they're going to do. That takes real courage, doesn't it? You know, to, um, you might have been in this position. You know, you feel the fear, but you do what God's word says anyway. 
takes courage to do that. Maybe you're facing that this week, one of those terrifying decisions where you know what you need to do and you're just praying that God will give you the courage to see it through because you know that's what, that's what the Bible is telling you to do. It's what God's telling you to do by his spirit. You're going to do what God's word has taught you to do. Well, that means you're standing in a long line of faithful Christians. Imagine Joshua and Zerubbabel sort of cheering you on. Because despite the fear, they're building the altar. That's their priority. And when God moves our hearts, that's when we value the sacrifice. That's when it moves up our priority list. See. Well, the sacrifice that they're, um, that they're returning to here is, is, is called the burnt offering. The burnt offering. Burnt offering to the Lord's. And uh, that's described in, in the first five books of the Bible. That's really the sort of baseline sacrifice. That's the sacrifice that you make twice a day, where the, uh, the animal is, is, is killed and, and, and it's put on the fire and then it's all burnt up every morning, every evening. And, and you watched it. This is the point of the sacrifice. You, you watch that, that sacrifice being made and you think to yourself, that should be me. That's what you think. Because on the one hand, God's anger is that serious. You know, but, but on the other hand, he's providing a way for it to be sorted out. And, 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 and that is the basis of, of, of God's people's relationship with, with God himself. Now that the exile is over, they know they've made all kinds of mistakes. And so they return to the burnt offering. The most basic offering of all, according to the book of Leviticus, where the fire of God's anger burns up an animal in your place so that you can come back to God. The thing is, the, um, the animal was only like, a, like an insurance cover note. Have you ever had an, an insurance cover note? I don't know if you know how that works. Uh, we've just um, bought some travel insurance for Justin, he's having to go off to, to Greece uh, uh, with a family that he knows. And, then, and, and what you do is you, you order the insurance online and then uh, they give you a cover note. And that says that you're basically covered um, uh, while they're assessing all of the risks and, and while they're waiting for the payment to go through and that kind of thing. And, and that sort of covers you until the policy arrives. And, and that's your cast iron guarantee. And, and the burnt offering is a bit like a cover note, if I can put it like that, like an insurance cover note. Because, um, because Jesus is going to come 500 years later, um, just 500 years, and Jesus is going to come. He was called the Lamb of God, no wonder, because um, you can read this in the Gospels. He was annihilated on the cross like a sacrifice. He was annihilated on the cross in our place. And on the one hand, God's anger is that serious, you know. But on the other hand, he's providing a real way for that anger to be sorted out. And this time, it's, it's like for like. It's, it's a human being for a human being. And, and, and in fact, more than that, it is God in human form, and he's hanging on the cross, on that piece of wood, and it's the final payment. The final payment. And it goes through. We know that as Jesus walks out of the grave. 
And, and, and we look at the cross and we think to ourselves, that should be me there on the cross. That should be me. But God himself has made the final payment so that I can come back to him. It's all paid. It's done. Sacrifice is so necessary, you see. So necessary. Have you found it? Because when, when, when God moves our hearts, the first place he takes us is to the sacrifice. You see, he makes the cross the center of everything. That was the transaction that makes relationship with him possible. The final act of love as Jesus dies for us. And, and when, when God rebuilds his church, that's where God brings us, first of all. He brings us to the foot of the cross. It's very humbling. Um, John Stott was a Christian writer. Uh, he died about 10 years ago. Uh, so the church just down the road. And uh, this is what he says. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your death I'm paying, your death I'm dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness. That means in our ability to, to do the right thing ourselves, to sort ourselves out, until we've visited a place called Calvary. It is there, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. Have you discovered on that? Have you discovered that? And do you depend on it? That's the necessity of the sacrifice, our, our first point from Esther 3. But that's not where it stops. One more thing to challenge us from the second half of Ezra, chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. This is a sort of summary sentence. A new temple, will you rejoice over it? Because there's a second part to uh, Ezra, chapter 3, and it begins with the word then. The sort of, the implication is only then, only once they've done that, do they get in the builders. Okay, they get in the builders. And if they, I know some people here have had the builders in recently. Quite stressful. But um, they get the builders in, verse 7. Uh, they pay them up front. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. We heard about him in chapter 1. <laughs> it's interesting, though, is um, I don't know whether, whether many uh, builders know their history books, but, but these builders really know their history books. And they build in the same way that other people was built way back in history. Who, um, who seem to know their history books. Uh, apparently in, in Hastings, I know there's some people here who've been to Hastings, uh, there, are, there are all kinds of businesses that draw their names from the Battle of Hastings, I mean, as, as, as you would. Uh, so there's a, a vet called the 1066 Veterinary Surgery, and uh, you can join the 1066 Judo Club. Uh, and the local builder is called William the Concreter. <laughs> That's just great, isn't it? That's great. But you don't often come across 
builders who know their history books, these builders do, okay? This is history repeating itself. So there was a previous temple. It's been totally destroyed by this stage. But there was a previous temple built by Solomon in Jerusalem. You can read all about that in, in 2 Chronicles chapters 2 to 5. And the way that, that this temple is built in Ezra 3 has all kinds of deliberate references to, to, to the way the first temple was built. It's quite explicit in its references. So building materials are the same as last time. Okay, cedar logs, and, it, and they come from the same place as, uh, as for the first temple. Now the work begins in the same month as the month that it began back in 2 Chronicles. Quite deliberate. Um, just like the last one, uh, only people of a certain age are considered responsible enough to um, supervise the work. So from the age of 20 upwards, it says in, in verse 8. So uh, Amy, you're in. Uh, Alistair, you could, you could do that. Justin, sorry. Not quite considered responsible enough. And then, and then they name check David. I couldn't, couldn't be more obvious, could it? Um, David from the first temple. And then they sing exactly the same song that, um, that they sang back in, back in 2 Chronicles. We've, we've said it together and we've sung it together. Uh, I wonder how much those words sank in. He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. But then it ends with a surprise in verses 12 and 13. Always look for the surprise. Because um, this is where history stops repeating itself. Okay? So, so listen up. This is verses 12 and 13. It's a while since we heard them. Let me read them out again. Verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, that was the one that Solomon built, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Hmm, that didn't happen in the first temple. Now, people, some people disagree about exactly why people are weeping. They might think it's because the, the, the temple in Ezra is a little bit smaller. In fact, the dimensions are about the same. Uh, maybe they think it's not going to be as ornate as the, as the first temple, but they've only got the foundations. It's a bit hard to tell from the foundations quite how ornate it's going to be. Let me tell you what I think is going on. Uh, because if you go back to 2 Chronicles... You go back to 2 Chronicles, there's, there's, there's something that, that happens when, when the temple's been built. That's that God's glory enters the temple. God's glory comes to the temple. His presence in all of its majesty comes into the temple. They have to evacuate by every fire exit uh, because they can't stay in there. I mean, actually, you could go back even further than that. If you go back to Exodus 40, when Moses dedicates the tabernacle, which was a sort of tent which came just before the temple, God's glory enters it. Yeah? And Moses has to run for the exit. It fills the tabernacle. And, and more than that, in, um, in Ezekiel and uh, Zechariah, 
two prophets in the Old Testament, they had predicted something. They said that um, when the exiles came back to Jerusalem, that there would be an incredible temple which was filled with God's glory, just filled with it, God's presence and all its majesty. Be incredible. And here are the exiles standing there, and they've done everything right from one point of view, but God's glory never comes. It doesn't come. No wonder they weep. Well, it turns out, as you go through the Bible, that the temple was a, a sort of covenant for something else that was coming. Just a temporary covenant for something that happened 500 years later. Because Jesus comes as the real temple and the location of God's glory. Now, as, as you go through the New Testament, the, the temple is sort of represented by God's church. We're going to come back to that in a couple of weeks' time. But, but before that, the temple points to Jesus himself. He turns up in human history. This is the remarkable thing about Jesus Christ. He turns up in human history... And John says, in, in, in the remarkable introduction to his gospel, he says, of Jesus, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. That's Jesus. God's glory has turned up. And, and no wonder then that um, as you go from chapter 1 to chapter 2, Jesus calls himself the temple. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? It's where God's glory dwells. John, John chapter 2, destroy this temple, says Jesus, and, um, and I will raise it again in three days. John chapter 2, verse 19. He's the temple. And, and more than that, it is, it is on the cross, as Jesus dies, that God's glory shines the brightest. That Jesus walks towards his death, and he says, the hour has come, Glorify your son. It's a moment of greatest glory as Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus is the new temple. Will you rejoice over him? Will you? Now it's true that there'll be some weeping in the present, there'll be tears. There'll be plenty of tears shed in our experience in, in the here and now because we haven't seen Jesus' glory come fully, as it will, on the day that he returns. Until that day, there will be tears shed. And uh, you may have been weeping this week. Um, it's my dad's memorial service a week on Saturday. There'll be tears shed. Some of us will be weeping, I've no doubt. But even now, if we want to rebuild the church will want to rejoice over the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. I mean, it's going to humble us, but that is where we will have to begin. The heart of Christianity is not therapy, it's rescue. We see Jesus dying and we think, that should have been me. But he's come to rescue me. He died for me. And I have nothing left to pay. We did the sinning. He did the dying. So that we could come back to God. And when we've understood that, we will rejoice. Maybe through the tears. 
but we will rejoice and we will want to keep the cross of Jesus Christ central. Uh, there was someone in the first century AD, quite soon after, after Jesus came. Uh, apparently he was, by tradition, he was taught by the Apostle John who wrote the gospel that I was just talking about. His name was Ignatius and he said this, apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. Apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. It's quite easy to be dazzled, isn't it, by those, um, you know, those slightly awe-inspiring entrance halls to the big offices down in the city, you know, all covered in marble, you know, 15 receptionists looking at you as you get trapped in the revolving door. You know, it's, it's quite easy to be dazzled by that, isn't it? Um, quite easy to be dazzled by big money. Someone dangles a big pay packet in front of your, in front of your eyes. Ways to be dazzled by fame and, and power. Don't let it dazzle you. It's quite easy to be dazzled by our own fears, I think. You know, about the future, about our, about our families, about our church as it comes out of the pandemic. It's easy to be dazzled by our fears. And there, and there might be weeping now, it's true. It's true. But apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. Because when, when God moves our hearts, he, he takes them, first of all, to the cross. You've got to go there if you're going to become a Christian and put your trust in what Jesus did for you. We, we stand at the foot of the cross and we see that completed sacrifice. And we see the new temple of Jesus Christ and we see God's glory revealed in the cross. And we rejoice in what is given to us at that location. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you, you love to rebuild your people and you do it from the inside out. And so I pray, Father, that we would allow you to move our hearts. And I pray, Father, that you would take us to Jesus Christ and him dying on the cross. And I pray, Father, we would be humbled by the price that he paid for us. But I pray, Father, that we would rejoice in the freedom that we find, in the, in the death that he died for us so that we could live in all the benefits that he deserves. Please take us again and again to depend on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we ask in his name. Amen.